Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Hi there. This is Greg Young with a special story today of magic of a spell book able to conjure miracles from just a few common items found in nature, elevating its conjurer into a wizard of the kitchen. This is the story of the first American cookbook and the mysterious woman who created this incredible document 225 years ago this year. Now, this episode was originally released as part of the Bowery Boys spinoff, The First, and I hope it inspires you to try out something a little different in the kitchen tonight. Hello, I'm Julia Child. We're going to make buff bourguignon beef stew with red wine, and it's a wonderful show to begin our series on because it shows you so many useful things about French cooking, how to brown meat, how to braise onions, how to saute mushrooms, how to make a wonderful sauce, and you make a buff bourguignon just the way you make any other kind of a stew, like chicken, cocovin, and now here's our beef. Let's get the title of this book out of the way, shall we? It was called American Cookery, or The Art of Dressing Viands, Fish, poultry and vegetables, and the best modes of making pastes, puffs, pies, tarts, puddings, custards, and preserves, and all kinds of cakes, from the imperial plum to plain cake, adapted to this country and all grades of life, by Amelia Simmons, an American orphan. That was the name of the first cookbook by an American author ever published in the United States, printed in 1796 in Hartford, Connecticut. It is not just a book of recipes. It is a historical document filled with strange little mysteries. Hidden within its pages are a couple core ingredients before unseen that would change the modern world. In the 21st century, cooking is not merely a way of preparing sustenance. Today we consider it art, sport, entertainment, science, and magic. We have a world of ingredients at our fingertips and an extraordinary range of devices, surfaces, and tools on which to prepare them. America has always been a literal melting pot of flavors. Fine dining in the United States was primarily categorized by foreign cultures until the 1980s when something called New American began popping up in trendy urban restaurants, helping to give birth to the modern foodie culture. To a woman like Amelia Simmons, born in the colonial era during a period before American independence, the strange objects presented upon the dishes of new American restaurants today would have looked inedible, the scents and flavors from another world. But in a way, Miss Simmons is the foremother of new American cuisine. Literally, of course, America was actually new and she the creator of the first public document of some of its more eccentric flavors, but also spiritually. For if new American cuisine molecularly recomposes the food of international regions into a modern fusion, so Simmons was performing a bit of alchemy herself, marrying common traditional European cooking methods upon the meats and plants available only on the North American continent. 
European settlers came to North America for many different reasons. The English for religious liberty, the Dutch for business, the Spanish for conquest. They arrived not to land devoid of civilization, but to sparsely populated territories controlled by a great many indigenous people. The Europeans brought with them specific kinds of cooking and eating habits, but this new world had animals and plants unseen across the Atlantic. As the European settlements became permanent and eventually forced out the American Indians from their lands, they slowly absorbed these novel meats, fruits, and vegetables into their standard European templates of eating. By 1750, colonists were regularly enjoying such American staples as turkey, cranberries, pumpkins, and perhaps most importantly of all, corn. But the colonies all eventually developed very independently from one another. Virginians, with their year-round crops and a source of enslaved labor, were far better fed than those in New England colonies who were forced to develop particular diets on a seasonal schedule. Refrigeration was non-existent, colonial trade sometimes difficult, and the importation of common household items, not to mention exotic foods and spices, well, such imports were often expensive. More elaborate recipes were passed down within families and were mostly the luxury of wealthier colonists who could afford a wide array of ingredients. Perhaps the most famous family cookbook from this period is that of Martha Washington, a family heirloom passed down through generations, which she first received in 1749. The diet was classic England. The most prominent Americans of the 18th century ate like the English royalty of the 17th. The first published European cookbooks in the world weren't meant to enshrine ideal meals, but rather to inform a woman of her place in the household. The best known of these European cookbooks was from the 17th century, called The English Housewife, containing the inward and outward virtues which ought to be in a complete woman, written by a man, Gervais Markham, and published in the year 1615. For most women, cooking in the 17th and 18th centuries was their most prominent opportunity to show a little creativity and control. As such, many developed their own unique skills and recipes in the kitchen. But the pressures of English society, the desire to conform, especially in upper-class dining rooms, led to the popularity of a great many 18th century cookbooks, many written by women, that outlined the right way to make popular dishes. There was The Complete Housewife, or Accomplished Gentlewoman's Companion, published in England in 1727 and written by Eliza Smith. Or Susanna Carter's The Frugal Housewife, or Complete Woman Cook, published in 1765. As you can tell from those titles, these works were meant to enhance a woman's role in the home and were marketed as comprehensive guides. Another interesting and very telling thing about these two most famous cookbooks from the 18th century, very little is known about the two authors of those books, Eliza Smith and Susanna Carter. Another popular cookbook of the day, from 1747, which was called The Art of Cookery Made Plain and Easy, was written by another woman named Hannah Glass, who was a cook that we actually do know a little bit more about, for one, she went bankrupt and was eventually thrown into debtor's prison. 
I mention these cookbooks, these English cookbooks, because they were all eventually published in the United States. In the case of Ms. Carter's The Frugal Housewife, its American 1774 edition was illustrated by a Boston engraver named Paul Revere. Yes, that Paul Revere. These books would have created a semblance of uniformity on the American dinner table, but they all lacked one very important ingredient. Any mention at all of the rich, unique foods found only in the Americas. Into this uncharted territory steps a genuine culinary enigma. Her name was Amelia Simmons. Like many of the other female authors of 18th century cookbooks, we know very little about Ms. Simmons, how old she was, or whether or not she was even married. Her vast knowledge of unique American cooking techniques suggests a life spent in the kitchen, suggesting she might have been domestic help in a large, wealthy household. But she must have had some money herself. The first edition of her American cookery was published in 1796 by Hudson and Goodman in Hartford, Connecticut, quote, for the author, meaning she paid for the printing costs for the book's initial modest run. If you go back to the beginning of this show, if you can remember the title of that book, because at the very end of the title, that contains a second important aspect to her biography. The book was written by Amelia Simmons, quote, an American orphan. In her short three-paragraph preface, she gives no personal details whatsoever, and yet at the same time, I think it telegraphs her station in life quite dramatically. Quote, as this treatise is calculated for the improvement of the rising generation of females in America, the lady of fashion and fortune will not be displeased if many hints are suggested for the more general and universal knowledge of those females in this country who, by the loss of their parents or other unfortunate circumstances, are reduced to the necessity of going into families in the line of domestics, or taking refuge with their friends or relations, and doing these things which are really essential to the perfecting them as good wives and useful members to society. Another intriguing detail was that this book, which was 48 pages long, was reasonably priced and very plainly presented. This book was not aimed at wealthier households, but rather those less stuffier kitchens, where more original influences veered lavish meals away from European formalities. This was an egalitarian handbook. In fact, as the title indicates, her book was for, quote, all grades of life. This paints a very extraordinary picture of Amelia Simmons, an orphaned, most likely unmarried cook with ambitions of a publishing career in a new country that was not even 15 years old. This alone would make American cookery a classic document of female independence in the 18th century. But its real importance to American social customs would be found within the recipes themselves. American cookery gives us a one-of-a-kind look inside domestic realities of the United States in the 1790s. There were, incidentally, 16 states in the Union by the time of the book's publication. As Mary Tolford Wilson wrote in 1957, Amelia Simmons' work was, in its minor sphere, another declaration of American independence. 
Let me read you two of the most famous recipes from American cookery. See if you can guess what modern food equivalent this describes. The first is for the Johnny Cake. Scald one pint of milk and put to three pints Indian meal and half pint flour. Bake before the fire. Or scald with milk two-thirds of the Indian meal or wet two-thirds with boiling water. Add salt, molasses, and shortening. Work up with cold water, pretty stiff, and bake as above. Now that was the first recipe. The second is for the Indian Slapjack. One quart of milk, one pint of Indian meal, four eggs, four tablespoons of flour, little salt, beat together, baked in griddles or fry in a dry pan, or baked in a pan which has been rubbed with suet, lard, or butter. The first thing you'll notice about those recipes is that they are sorely lacking in certain specifics. Many basic cooking practices were simply assumed, they were never spelled out, while other instructions nod to the relative simplicity of the post-colonial kitchen, such as, quote, bake before the fire. These recipes are for food items closely resembling our modern pancake today. In fact, the name Indian Slapjack seems to have been invented or at least discovered by Miss Simmons, a colloquialism she enshrined in print for the very first time. Now, that first recipe was for a Johnny Cake, a popular American treat and distant cousin to the pancake. It contains the reason for Miss Simmons' importance in American culinary history, the ingredient she calls Indian meal. That's cornmeal, today one of the principal cornerstones of American cooking. Her cookbook contains the first instructional uses of corn as a replacement for English oats. This fusion of English tradition and Native American food preparations out there in the laboratory of the new United States of America doesn't exactly seem very unique to us today because we live in a world of global cuisine. But it would have appeared revolutionary to supplant long-held English customs with those learned from the Native inhabitants of North America. This would be only the beginning of the evolution of American cuisine, and the first of many wonders that arise from American cookery. Up next, the magical abilities of something called pearl ash after the break. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. 
In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states in Canada where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. I know we're talking about literally the cornerstone of great American cooking, but I have to say that I am a big, big fan of the great British Bake Off, so much more so than other American cooking shows, because it's a show about the true art of baking, firmly based on traditional dishes that trace back hundreds of years. It's cooking based on history. In the cookbook American Cookery, Amelia Simmons' use of everyday only in American combinations reflects practicality, not showmanship. She's demonstrating new fusions and flavors in print, but she didn't invent them. In truth, her selections were showing up in American kitchens for at least a decade or two. Among her lovely selection of puddings are a couple recipes for previously unseen varieties, a crookneck or winter squash pudding, and a pumpkin pudding, or pumpkin pudding as it's written, which sounds like it would go hand in hand today with all the pumpkin spice products currently sold in trendy coffee shops. Because food was often made in advance, the proportions of Amelia's recipes are enormous. Her pumpkin recipe, for instance, requires the use of one quart of stewed and strained pumpkins, three pints of cream, and nine beaten eggs. So your cholesterol right now might have just risen, and I apologize for that. Keep in mind the kitchens she was writing for, this quote, for all grades of life. These kitchens would have had, by our standards, very large and very basic stoves and Dutch ovens. There were no quick recipes, and some dishes even took several weeks to make. Although by all appearances this is a New England cookbook, several hints of North America's Dutch settlements, which were in New York and along the Hudson River, these also make their first printed appearances here, including the term cookie, which derives from a Dutch word, and the word slaw for the Dutch word slaw, S-L-A, for salad. But it's the appearance of a confusingly named chemical compound that marks American cookery as a vital marker for all culinary history worldwide. There would be no Great British Bake Off without it. To create that exquisite lightness that the best baked goods possess, the dough must be leavened. 
In the olden days, expert cooks actually beat in air into the dough, occasionally even using yeast and sometimes liquor. Now somebody, we don't exactly know who it was, one day came up with the idea of adding the chemical salt compound potash, or potassium carbonate, into a batter which, when it meets milk and other fluids in the recipe, creates a delightful lightning or bubbling effect. In the 1790s, this was known as pearl ash. This chemical marvel makes its first written appearance in Amelia Simmons' American Cookery in a recipe for molasses gingerbread featuring, quote, one tablespoon of cinnamon, some coriander or allspice, put in four teaspoons pearl ash, dissolved in half pint water, four pound flour, one quart molasses, four ounces butter, knead well till stiff, the more the better, the lighter and whiter it will be. Pearl ash would lead to the development of baking powders in the 1840s, a product which energized the industry of baking in the 19th century and became a staple of every American household in the early 20th century. This little book would change the direction of American cooking, albeit slowly and not exactly in the expected ways. Several editions under Simmons' name would make its way through the growing country well into the 1830s. It would also be heavily plagiarized. In 1808, a woman named Lucy Emerson published The New England Cookery, literally taking Simmons' entire book and just renaming it. To be fair, though, Simmons herself did a bit of plagiarizing. Her book included portions of Susanna Carter's 1765 The Frugal Housewife, which I had mentioned earlier in the show. Copying each other's work was not an uncommon practice in early cookbook and recipe creation. But if some of the content was unoriginal, there was one aspect of American cookery that might have been totally fabricated. The identity of Amelia Simmons herself. One theory by Andrew Smith, the editor of the Oxford Encyclopedia of Food and Drink in America, posits that like a good Benjamin Franklin pseudonym, that Amelia may have been a front possibly for a wealthy woman through social status or personal situation would have deemed a public writing career as undignified. Well, by 1829, a brilliant new cookbook became essential for American kitchen counters. It was also called The Frugal Housewife, like Susanna Carter's book. But later that title was changed to The Frugal American Housewife to distinguish it from the original book. Its subtitle was Dedicated to Those Who Are Not Ashamed of Economy, and it was written by a young woman named Child. Not Julia Child, of course, but Lydia Maria Child, a Massachusetts writer of unusual modern sensibility. Unlike the cookbook of Amelia Simmons, which collated pre-existing regional New England recipes, Child was a bit of a risk-taker, conjuring new ideas with a rather informal, conversational tone for a book of this type. More of a domestic advice book, like a few of the others I've mentioned in this show, she was very inspired by Benjamin Franklin. It even opens with a couple quotes from the Founding Father, and it's loaded with time-saving adages. Not only did Child's Frugal American Housewife kick off a new series of cookbooks, it did wonders for Miss Child's own writing career, who settled for more important issues later in life, becoming a renowned abolitionist writer as well as the founder of America's first children's magazine. 
Believe it or not, though, you may know Lydia Maria Child from another work, perhaps the most famous poem about Thanksgiving ever, published in 1844. Over the river and through the woods to grandfather's house we go. The gender of the intended grandparent changed in successive versions. Over the river and through the woods to grandmother's house we go. The horses away to carry the slave wine and drift in snow. Over the river and through the woods the wind and blow. It stings to toes and bites the nose. So around we go. Well, there's only one thing wrong with that. What's that, Charlie Brown? My grandmother lives in a condominium. Now, we've had a lot of Thanksgiving talk on the show, several Thanksgiving themes and fall harvesty smells and tastes and flavors. These are all indeed an American thing. But the foods described in the show thus far, those modified with Native American influences, are probably what we would today classify more as New England or Mid-Atlantic American food. There was another major input to the cornucopia of food ideas in this country, and that's the influences of African and Caribbean cooking via the enslaved people and freed men and women from those places. These flavors and cooking styles would greatly influence the American palate, but most strongly in the South. The reasons are complicated and varied. African enslaved people fared better on plantations eating food they were familiar with. When they could cook for themselves, black cooks synthesized cooking techniques and African and Caribbean raw foods with traditional American staples. Those who worked in white plantation kitchens slowly influenced the cooking styles there. Within a few decades, an entirely redefined and radically different American style of cuisine thrived. The most famous Southern cookbook of the 19th century was written by a white Virginia woman named Mary Randolph called The Virginia Housewife or Methodical Cook, published in 1824. Sure, it does go along with this housewife theme again, the idea of a handbook for all things domestic. But its concentration of dishes popular in Virginia technically makes it the first American cookbook devoted to a regional palate. Published less than 30 years after Amelia Simmons' cookbook, The Virginia Housewife is filled with recipes you can find all over the South to this day, with plenty of Creole touches, okra, gumbo, barbecue, and more. Randolph was from a prominent Virginia family and for a time lived on a lavish plantation in Richmond, Virginia. But in 1807, her husband declared bankruptcy and Mary began operating a boarding house in Richmond. From the kitchen there, working with several enslaved people, Randolph developed dishes of not only clear African lineage, but even a few Spanish-inspired recipes, including this recipe for gazpacho. Quote, put some soft biscuit or toasted bread in the bottom of a salad bowl, put in a layer of sliced tomatoes with the skin taken off and one of sliced cucumbers, sprinkled with pepper, salt, and chopped onion. Do this until the bowl is full. Stew some tomatoes, quite soft, strain the juice, mix in some mustard, oil, and water, and pour over it. Make it two hours before it's eaten. Keep in mind, by the way, that tomatoes were actually quite a rarity in the United States in 1820 and were most certainly foreign objects and cookbooks up until this point. At the time of the Virginia Housewives publication, the Spanish territory of Florida had only recently come into the possession of the United States. Thank you. 
And so I go back to the theme of new America, new American cuisine, the idea of melting pot as a way to describe not just the diverse communities of the United States becoming one, but also the foods in which they ate. English culinary traditions transformed by native indigenous ingredients and the taste palates of Dutch, French, Spanish, Caribbean, and African people. In 1866, an African-American woman from Tennessee named Melinda Russell published a book called Domestic Cookbook, containing a careful selection of useful receipts for the kitchen. This is the first cookbook ever written, at least so far discovered, by an African-American woman. It was written in 1864 from Michigan. She and her crippled son fled there during the Civil War. Her receipts or recipes, as we know the word today, fall more in line with what Amelia Simmons might have been more familiar with, mostly culinary delights of European lineage. Recipes for gingerbread, plum cakes, cookies, and several delicious plates made from Indian meal or cornmeal. And there's even a few practical non-edible mixtures added in the cookbook as well. Recipes for shampoo, hair oil, and cologne. All that we know about Ms. Russell is found there in the book's foreword. She joins the great list of American women, glimpses of whom we get only from these published works. Women who have helped create the great American menu. And so, a nod to Simmons, Child, Randolph, Russell, and the countless other women who are this country's true top chefs. Next step is to fold in the cheese. What does that mean? What does fold in the cheese mean? You fold it in. I, I understand that, but how, how do you fold it? Do you fold it in half like a piece of paper and drop it in the pot, or what do you do? David, I cannot show you everything. Okay, well, can you show me one thing? Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. <laughs>